did it. Season two, episode 10. Welcome to Women and Music. I'm your host, Alexa Ace. I began my career in the music industry interning around London at age 19, sliding my foot in the door anywhere possible. Around that time, I began to notice a major lack of diversity and instantly became determined to give women in the music industry a stronger voice, especially those going into college attempting to follow their passions. Lost but eager to become something more. I understood that. I was that person. I wanted my female peers to know that having a career in music didn't just mean you had to be a singer on stage. You could be a manager, a PR agent, a songwriter, a producer, a photographer, the list goes on. The music business isn't just for men in suits at labels and stagehands. The music business creates legends both on and off stage. I'm here to share the voices, career paths, and intimate stories behind women in the music industry across all walks of life. Yes, this is a feminist podcast. Let's do this. Thank you for supporting. Today's guest is Verite. Verite, aka Kelsey, is a prolific and spellbinding songwriter, executive producer, and performer, and her independently produced albums, EPs, and singles have garnered over 350 million streams across all platforms, with the average of 1 million listeners a month. Currently, she's focusing on the micro, building her community, honing in on her production skills, and finding inspiration in the simplicity of her creative process. Garnering acclaim and coverage from outlets such as NPR, V Magazine, Billboard, MTV, Time, Refinery29, and Forbes, who flagged the New York-based artist as a leader of a new breed of musicians, Verite is a career independent artist carving out a niche for herself through the digital landscape. Additionally, Verite recently became the first artist to auction master recording rights in perpetuity for her new single, Buy Now, via NFTs. By Now is the first of a series of singles Verite plans to release as she further extends her limbs into new sounds, new collaborations, and new worlds. Join Verite and I as we discuss depression, female entrepreneurship, cryptocurrency, and more. Introducing Verite. So I want to talk specifically about Buy Now and NFTs and a little bit about remixes too, because I saw that you've done quite a bit. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for streaming and listening to By Now. It's such a weird experience to create something and then put it into the world. It's oddly anticlimactic. And so I feel like moving forward, I'm really excited to have the experience of talking to people about the song and eventually performing it live when we can do that. Yeah, that's amazing. When do you anticipate your first show? I have no idea, but also I've had fall dates held since March of last year. So ah, it's going to happen. It's possible that it could happen. So fingers are crossed. Fingers are crossed. Kelsey, where do you begin when you're writing a song? It really depends on what current routine I'm in. For me, a lot of times it's just me sitting at the piano fumbling and mumbling and chords and melody and lyrics coming at the same time. Sometimes there's some lyrics beforehand. And so basically I view it as trying to capture bits of inspiration. And then once I've caught them, putting them into a song form without messing it up. So you typically start at the piano. Yeah, either at the piano or honestly walking or running. I do a lot of writing in my head. Oh, I love that. Me too. Once you get used to writing too, you just start walking around and you realize you're writing your own world. Yeah. And I think that sometimes the piano is beneficial because it gives you some sort of harmonic structure. 
I wrote a Christmas song last year and that was a weird experience where literally I wrote it all in my head on a run. And then I got to the end of my run and I sat down really quick and I did a voice memo and I wrote down all the lyrics and it was just a seamless process. And then on the production side, I got to completely reharmonize it and recontextualize. So it's never the same experience. That's fascinating. So what was the experience when writing By Now? By Now was written alone in my old apartment in a whole different lifetime or so it seems like January 2020, right? So pre-pandemic. And that song was really written piano, vocal, that kind of fumbling. And I think that you can hear it in the form a bit. It's not really a traditional pop structure form. I wrote it as a ballad and allowed it to be a bit linear and kept it that way. And then the final production you hear, honestly, was I sent it to a producer friend and he completely recontextualized and flipped it on its head, sped it up, chopped it up. And so there's two versions of that song now. So how did you feel about that? Because I remember reading too in your press release about how you were in quite a depressive state around the beginning of last year when you first wrote By Now. So when you sent it to a producer, how does it feel as an artist when they come back with something different? For how I work and how I collaborate, I put it like I hit ceilings, right? And so I have bursts of creativity where I'm hyperproductive, have a lot of ideas, and then I hit a ceiling with them. And it's like, there's no doors, there's no windows, and I don't know how to get out of the room. And so I really value collaborators coming in and creating some doors for me. And then once I have a door, I can completely embrace a different direction if it's right. And it just so happened that Tim Randolph is his name. He changed it so much. He took it in such a different direction that I found it to be really exciting. And then I find it really exciting that I have a produced version of the acoustic, the original that I produced. So that's going to come out as well. So people get to really choose their own experience with it. How do you feel about that for your fans to experience different versions? I think it's important. I think that when you're an artist, you have a few different brains, right? You have the brain of like, I am creating art and I want to create things that feel good to me. I want to create things that feel good to my fans and the people that listen to my music. But I also want to create things that are commercially viable and that can capture a broader audience. And so the idea of having different versions and experiences of a song satisfy all of those things within me. It's like, cool, I can make a version that is focused to the broader audience, and then I can make the exact version that I want to make to satisfy my super artistic side. I think that's absolutely incredible. And you even opened it up with saying that it just kind of depends on where you are when you're first writing the song. So it's cool that your fans and your audience get to explore different sides of one song and maybe they even interpret it in different ways too. And I think that's also very smart as someone who's in pop to do a bit more commercial, but also keep some of the personal pieces for yourself. So many people interpret the meanings of songs differently. Like I don't really want to impose my meaning on someone. Like I want them to have their own experience. So what does an average song release look like for you? I noticed that you had just released by now, and of course that makes me wonder what's to come. When you're releasing a song or when you're releasing an EP, what are your goals? 
I feel like this question has changed so much and changes so much as the music industry evolves and as my career evolves. And so I think for me, I don't necessarily have these specific benchmarks and goals anymore, especially song releases. You're really battling an algorithm and you're battling a system that isn't necessarily designed to help you succeed. So I think reframing what success is has been really vital to maintaining resilience in being an artist that consistently releases music. And it's about what does my community look like? What do my fans look like? And what do they want? And really focusing in on the micro relationships while still playing the macro game, right? We're still playing this bigger game, but recognizing that we've been so conditioned to believe that the more eyeballs you have on something, the more quote unquote successful it is, the more money it makes. On the flip side, you recognize that that literally isn't true. At all. Especially right now. Especially right now. And so recognizing that I have an extremely viable and successful career so long as I am measuring that by the right metrics and recognizing that like I'm playing my own game as an artist. I heard you mention the word algorithm. I'm so fascinated by the way that you're speaking because it's also very similar to the way that I think. In fact, I know that I follow, for example, just a few different Instagrams that as an entrepreneur mentioned, it is so important to focus on the people that are already so dedicated to you because it's less about the followers and all these stacks of likes and streams. It's more about how honed in can you get into your community? So I think that you are on the absolute right path. And this is something that I think isn't really mentioned a lot since we're coming out of this weird need for streams and likes. Yeah, exactly. That being said, when you're on the right side of that game, it works really well. But I guess I recognized as an artist and a person and a businesswoman, I don't want to do that. That's not necessarily how I want to grow my business. It's not how I want to interact with people. I don't want to feel like I'm collecting people. I really value one-on-one experiences and conversations. When you look at all of the platforms that we're expected to be hyperactive and vigilant on as artists and creatives, I can't do TikTok. I can't do it. I don't care. It's not within the scope of my personality. But you know what? What I can do is host conversations on Clubhouse and start a podcast, right? And so recognizing that, okay, I do have to be very present, but I can be present in ways that work for me and are sustainable long-term. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I'd love to get into some of your lyrics behind By Now. I'd love to diagnose them a little bit. Oof, they're dark. I'm down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. Okay, so too slow to escape the sound. That was the very first lyric that stood out to me. What's the sound? What do you hear that you're trying to escape? I'm going to put that one in context. The whole second verse isn't in the original. It's not in the acoustic production. It wasn't in the original. We added it because the form of the fully produced version needed something. So that was actually tacked on in the ninth hour. But I didn't know that lakes had tides. And they do have tides, but they actually are so subtle and move so slowly that you can't detect them. And so it's this idea 
for that lyric specifically that it's like the tide creeps up so slowly and so subtly that you actually don't recognize it until it's taken you and you're slowly being brought out in this metaphor to the middle of the lake. I found that to be really interesting comparing it to what it's like living in depression, right? This idea that you don't necessarily always see it coming. It's not like a wave that crashes. It's something that's like really subtle. And then one day you wake up and you're like, fuck, (laughs) right? Okay, we're here again. And so I really love that that verse got added in. That's the dissection of that. Well, thank you for that. Speaking very openly and honestly, I also have panic disorder and depression and anxiety, ADHD, you name it. So thank you. It's really fascinating that that's in the second verse and it wasn't even meant to be in it. And as a consumer, that was one of the first things that stood out to me. So just as we spoke about earlier, you never know who's going to attach to what part of your lyrics and how they're going to interpret it. So I definitely relate, especially with the word escape. And when you're in that depressive state, you want to escape. So when it comes to Darlin', you ought to know by now, I find myself sticking to the chorus. What do I have to know? Or what do you have to know? And are you darling? A, I like having conversations about particularly depression because that's my main beast in a really dispassionate way. And I think that a lot of times because there's so much emotional charge behind things, conversations about it can get dramatic, but it's something that is very normal for me. So I talk about it in a bit of a monotone way. I know it well, but I am hyper high functioning regardless of how I feel at any given point, which is a blessing and a curse. And so I think at the time of writing this song in particular, I was super high functioning and I was kind of at the point where I was trying to let a few people know like, okay, I'm like really not doing well, but I understand I'm on tour. I'm showing up with the face that I need to show up with. And it wasn't really translating because all people really see is what you do. And because it wasn't a dramatic display of mental illness, right? It wasn't messy. It was hard for people in my life to like connect those dots. And so I think that this song was just kind of about that disconnect and being like, well, you should know, like I'm sitting here trying to tell you within the metaphor of the song, I am going to drown in the lake, (laughs) right? So this idea of like, and you should know. And so like one of the lines of the song is so close, you should see it on my face by now, right? We are so close, you should know, but you don't. You should know. Wow. I agree. When you have depression, you can't tweet or put on Facebook, I'm depressed. People expect you to keep acting normal. It's also not professional, right? There's like a very fine line. I've worked really hard in my life to be high functioning and to push forward despite how I feel and all of these different things. So like I view those things as assets in a way, but this idea that somehow if I don't make a dramatic scene of this thing that you can't get people to take it seriously, like this is me hyper dissecting very, very small moments. Yeah, I have a lot of brilliant friends and family. So in no way is it me being like, they neglected me, but it's a subtle, very nuanced experience. Yeah. I feel the exact same. You saying it's not professional. Well, goddamn, like I hate to hear that because I completely agree. Depression wants you to not show up. Depression wants you to stay in bed. Depression wants you to see the worst side of yourself. But when you're trying to fight for yourself, professionalism 
has to win, but depression is still present. Do you agree? God, I'm going to make a horrible reference. <laughs> but so Dexter, serial killer, I'm not giving anything away, but like how he describes this urge to kill people is this quote unquote dark passenger, which it's the cheesiest thing, but in context, it's very charming in the show. There's two choices. Like I've definitely had the points in my life where I didn't function, right? Months of them. And those were primarily when I was younger. And it was a very conscious decision to be somebody who functions. What does that look like in terms of action? There are actions that are in my integrity and actions that aren't in my integrity. And sometimes they're the same actions on different days. So some days you need to rest. So like staying in bed all day is cathartic and it's resting and it's good for you, right? And then there are other days where that same action is not in my integrity and that action is actually detrimental to myself, to my being, to how I'm functioning within the world. And so it's just becoming really in tune with that and being like, okay, some days I can rest and some days aren't meant for rest, even though the depressive body and mind feels like all you want to do is lay in bed. Yeah. I'm hearing the word functioning a lot. Would you consider like, even when you're resting, do you consider that high functioning? Yeah, I definitely have to practice resting, right? That's like an active practice or I'll call my mom and she'll be like, you're going to burn out, stop. So I'm lucky to have people in my life who will very actively call me out and be like, this is not sustainable. And so I think for me, it's practice. None of this is something that anyone can get perfect, but it's cultivating an awareness around yourself and awareness around your intentions and your actions and what that means for you in terms of, is this good for me? Is this not good for me? And if it's not good for me, trying to take better action. And if it's good for me, leaning into that. Yeah. Especially when it is good for you and you know that you are not feeling too well. So what are some things that you do when you feel super down? For me, I really like running. I'm trying to pick up some hobbies. So I've gotten much more into cooking. Quite honestly, I really only cook two meals at a time for months on end. So it's nothing fancy, but you would want to eat it. It's like pasta with vegetables. And then I have another one that's like potatoes with vegetables. <laughs> but running for me, I think that it's one of those benchmarks. Like, let's just say I am sitting and like, creeping into a depressive episode, right? If I force myself to go for a run seven times out of 10, that'll really dampen it or like knock it out of me in some ways, just like moving. And if not, then at least I went for a run and that's a good thing that I can put in the good column. And I think a lot of it is avoiding going too far down the hill. I try and keep myself on the top of the hill <laughs> as long as possible so that I don't roll down to the dark bottom. For sure. And it's even harder to get up as soon as you're all the way down there because you chose to dismiss it or ignore it. And you're like, damn it, I knew I could have done something about this. Yeah. And then to take it back to by now, then you're in the middle of the fucking lake and you're just like, oh, cool. How did we get here again? It all comes full circle. <laughs> all right. Speaking of by now, let's talk NFTs. I'd love to know what sparked your curiosity into educating yourself on NFTs. So it was kind of serendipitous. I had started a podcast and I was looking 
for guests in the music industry, artists to come on. And I saw a Twitter rant from an artist named RAC. And I say that lovingly because I love his Twitter rants because they're very honest and very smart. And so I hit him up and I was just like, would you like to come on the podcast? And then in doing research for that episode, he was playing around in crypto with NFTs, with marketplace valuation of music. And in that conversation, he really shook something in me that made me feel uncomfortable in a good way. And when was this? God, that was November. So all of this is relatively new. Like I minted my first piece in February, but basically it's this idea of we have been fed a valuation of music from these large companies and told to accept it. And that valuation is essentially 0.004 cents per stream or whatever that is. And that is not sustainable for the amount of music that exists and disempowers artists. And so how I view NFT. NFTs, and I'm focusing specifically on music NFTs, they're essentially an empty box. You can put anything in them, but I'm a musician using it in the music space. So that's where I'll comment. They're an investable layer to music. So music is ubiquitous. It is free for almost anyone with an internet access to be able to listen to. And I think that's inherently good. And obviously, the unintended consequence of that. It's it's driven down the fundamental value of a song. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's inevitable. And now there's an opportunity for people who maybe have means and value ownership, value digital assets to come in and create this additional layer of music where they can actually own a one-of-one NFT of their favorite song. So they get to own something that's scarce. And I think that that becomes a new form of patronage within the music industry, because I don't think that you're going to fully reinvigorate the value of a digital asset. We have a generation of consumers who have been taught that everything on the internet is free and accessible. And quite frankly, I don't think there should be a paywall behind consumption and access to art. I think the idea that you have to have a certain amount of money to have a wide variety of music, that seems unfair to me in a lot of ways. And so I think that coming up with solutions where both can exist, that excites me. And maybe that's a little pessimistic of me, but also that's kind of how I see the reality of the situation. And I'm hyper pragmatic. I think that's amazing. I completely agree. And in fact, I keep going back to the fact that you're kind of saying that It's going to happen no matter what. I want to talk about the internet a lot. I'm just so in tune with everything you're saying because I think that you're absolutely right in the fact that streaming and the internet and artists, but the internet is here to stay. (laughs) That's just it. It's here. It's inevitable. It's not going to change. So your whole persona in some ways is just very personal. This is something that you can give or that you can completely create, but also your audience can be a part of in a way that is so personalized to them and them specifically. So can you kind of explain a little bit how you strategized your first one-to-one NFT? I didn't. (laughs) So I am very impulsive, my poor manager. And But it was one of those things where I felt a sense of urgency, like I saw the writing on the wall and I had a gut feeling. I was just like, I need to stake my claim. So I had done all of this research. We had a call with 
somebody who runs a platform called Zora, which is kind of like an open protocol. So it's not necessarily a marketplace, but it is in a way. But we had a call with them and they hooked me up with an account. And I was just like, I'm going to do something tomorrow. It was funny hashing that conversation out, even with Vanessa, my manager, because there was the sense of like, should we strategize more? And I was just really adamant that it just needs to happen. And worst comes to worst, nothing happens and it's not right and it doesn't do well. And then we can go strategize. And I was lucky that within the first day, we got $5,000 worth of bids on the first song that I ever released being put up. And so it was a really interesting experience and it kind of validated these thoughts that I was having about everything. But I think a lot with crypto NFTs, cryptocurrency, everything, you need to have the experience and the experience onboards you into the space, which I think why mass adoption is going to take a while. (laughs) So did you already have experience in the crypto world? No. So I basically had a few conversations. I had a conversation with RAC. I had a conversation with an artist named Justin Blau, both of whom came on the podcast and I really picked their brains and spoke to them offline. And then I just figured it out myself. I kind of dipped my toe in very gently with not a lot of personal risk and got to see what happened. I learned about it in November and then spent December and January really immersing myself in the community aspect of it. Because I think that when you're looking at how we're conditioned to treat music releases in the ether, the more eyes, the better in NFTs and in these spaces. A lot of those conversations happen either on Twitter or on Clubhouse at the moment. There's a very strong sense of community and duty and giving back to the community. And it's much more niche. But that being said, there's a lot of benefit to doing that. And so I spent a lot of time, like months, really focused on talking to people, meeting people, and then wound up having my own success and then trying to discover, okay, cool, recognizing that there's a horrific lack of women, Black women, women of color within the space. And so how do I, as somebody who's had even a little success on board and educate women to come on and build their own? And now that you've done it, what are some of those steps that you've taken to educate women or to even share your story? It's funny, I'm actually having a clubhouse room tonight because I'm working with a platform to help them onboard more women. And so I did a post and I got so many responses, but so many of those responses were just like, what's minting, right? So I couldn't even refer them to the platform yet because there was such an education gap. And so I'm just going to go in and answer questions. For me, it's this idea of just being a resource to people and that people know that, cool, if you come to me, with a question, I'll answer it, which is not dissimilar to what I do as an independent artist. And I actually view how people build their own little NFT empires in the same vein. It's like building any other business. It's like building any independent artist project. It's a lot of hustle. It's a lot of education and it's a lot of trial and error. And some things are going to work and some things aren't. And What you have to do is have a broad vision and then a lot of grit and tenacity for when things don't work out and you fall. You just have to bounce back up quicker than the people around you. 
So can you explain how investing in your master recordings of buy now as an NFT benefited the purchaser? So that's really interesting. Right now, you have two schools of thought when it relates to NFTs. For people who are collectors, who historically and currently are people who have a certain amount of wealth because collecting is a privilege and a luxury, essentially, they value ownership of something. They value having something that no one else has. A great metaphor that gets thrown around is the idea of Yeezys. People want the real Yeezys, the rare ones from StockX. They want to know that it's authentic. They want to know that they're purchasing something real and they want to know what addition they have of it. And so I think for a lot of people within this space, that is actually enough. The second NFT that I wound up selling, there was a physical component tied to that NFT. And the person who collected it said they didn't even want it. They just wanted the NFT. And so there is this idea that people want to know that they own a one-of-one. And because people are seeing 5, 10, 15 years into the future where our lives are primarily going to be lived online in the metaverse, and that owning digital assets, digital land and Decentraland is going to have value, maybe, right? It's also highly volatile. So it could all go to zero and all crumble. So it's highly speculative in that way. But then I do think that the utility of NFTs is great for merging the collectible and real world assets, which the release of Buy Now, that was the goal to experiment with. So essentially, I sold 2.3% of the Buy Now Master in addition to the collectible for 11 Ethereum, recognizing that I'm obviously working to make Buy Now as successful and profitable as I possibly can, obviously, but recognizing that that person who is a fan of mine actually is the first person to be involved in that experience and part of the first NFT that did that. And so there's a cachet there. And then in an ideal world, though it's not promised as an investment in that sense, we would all win. So on the flip, how did selling an NFT benefit you? I mean, immensely. At the beginning of last year, a lot of the world fell apart in tandem. A lot of aspects of my own personal life fell apart and the tour I was on fell apart. And I think that it really forced me to take a broad view of my life and career and what I want and what I'm building and reevaluate, which I think most people did. When I did that reevaluation, what I saw were the traditional paths to what we were calling success narrowing. Democratization of creation and distribution of music is good because it has created a long tail of artists who can make a super sustainable living. That being said, we're hitting a critical mass of oversaturation. And I think that There's a depersonalization of curation in the music industry. And so recognizing that if I'm not an artist who's going to play the algorithm game, and if I'm not an artist who's going to sign to a major label in order to get these placements on critical playlists, that there's not necessarily an avenue forward without a bit of luck. And so recognizing, okay, I need to figure out how to fill that gap of revenue because essentially... It's art, but I'm also running a business. And from the beginning, I've 
been intentionally independent because I want to be doing this in 10 years. So from my perspective, this was a really natural pivot. Since immersing myself, I've already made a year's worth of touring income. And quite frankly, the experiment with Buy Now, that collector who I really appreciate and have gotten to have some one-on-one conversations with who now has a lifetime ticket to any Verite show. We're really going to take care of him. They funded the whole release. And so this idea is it's freedom of experimentation for me. And so now moving forward, I'm not like, okay, cool. What's my next distribution deal going to look like? Who am I going to partner with? It's more so how creative can I get on these collectibles and with NFTs so that I can actually continue to create art and commune with fans, which is ultimately my goal. And so for me, I view that as a challenge. And so I have a few really cool projects that I'm working on, some of which are small and just experiments for the acoustic version of by now. If somebody bids a certain amount, they can commission a fully orchestrated version of that. They're getting a two for one NFT, but they're also getting the experience of being able to curate the instruments that we're using or how we put that recording together. And so collaboration with collectors who then have a hand in how the music comes out. There's a lot of things in generative music. It sounds like it's a lot of experimentation, but based on education. If you didn't pick up on the pieces, if you didn't pick up on RAC mentioning that he was involved, if you didn't further yourself and wanting to be curious, you're putting in the work. But I'd love to know your opinion on the internet and the future overall. I guess I'll put it into the context of how it affects my life and career. The internet, I think, is inherently good. (laughs) I think that even some of the unintended consequences of the internet, what it has done for people in allowing people to connect with each other, even though it's essentially devalued music to such an extent, the idea that with an internet connection, you have access to education, that you have access to health information, and you can literally work out on free videos on YouTube. I think those things are important. You know, as somebody who grew up, like I didn't really have access to a wide variety of music. I was the child of alternative radio and I couldn't afford to go buy CDs. So my musical education, it's funny, like people who were raised on certain music, it's just like, I didn't listen to the Beatles until I was 19, 20. That's not what I grew up on. But people take that for granted. And so from my perspective, ubiquitous access is good. And then figuring out a way to monetize that access with exclusive experiences for people who have the means is the next step of the internet. And you're starting to see that even with podcasts, you have Apple and Spotify talking about putting things behind paywalls and all of these different things. And I think that some of those experiments are going to be successful and some are going to fail miserably because you recognize that, am I willing to pay an extra $20 a month for this subscription? Probably not when I can find a free clip of it on YouTube. Can I ask your opinion on Amazon? I just think Amazon would be so much better with way more regulation. (laughs) I think that that's with all companies though. I think that if we're talking about the internet and capitalism, I don't think those things are so inherently horrific, but we need way more regulation on those things. 
I think that the extreme negative connotation on the internet and on social media even has been because of the misuse of it or even the obsessive use of it. It's a tool. That's the thing. It's all a tool. Even Clubhouse, I was talking to someone about how the usership severely declined. And that's because I don't view Clubhouse as a platform. I view it as a tool. It did what it needed to. So I'd love to go just a little bit further into some of your old music real quick. When you're releasing a remix of a song, does the remix get sent to you or do you seek the collaboration? Remixes are weird. I think that for a long time, there was this idea of remixes are necessary. You have to do remixes. And I think that now that's changed a bit. For a lot of them, if I'm reaching out to someone to do a remix, I'm letting them do what they want. So long as they don't do a technically poor job, I'll put it out. I feel like when you do a remix and you reach out to an artist, you're kind of trusting their vision of the song. And the goal is to create something completely different. And so I enjoy giving people that freedom. I think I haven't done a lot of remixes as of late, just because I haven't been motivated to. But I think if the right situation came, then it would. I'm kind of like more cover focused, but it's kind of the same thing. That's me interpreting someone else's song and having my full artistic license to interpret it. So it's a similar process. So what advice do you have for younger women seeking success in the music industry? Recognizing that nothing is going to be given to you, which is good. The idea that like you can work and build something independently. If you don't have money, you can bootstrap and self-fund to put yourself in a position of power when negotiating investment, when negotiating different collaborative business relationships. And I think that that is key, especially for women, is recognizing that if you put in the work upfront, if you educate yourself, that is putting you in a position of power and not waiting for somebody to come do the job for you. And I think a lot of that is like societal conditioning, right? I definitely have had that, this idea of like, I'm just waiting for someone to come do this the right way. (laughs) There are a lot of different paths towards success. And sometimes the shorter line works. That being said, I think for me, what is most important to me is autonomy and having options in my career. And for that, I've really embraced independence and I've really embraced becoming a very diversified in what I do for my project. And I found immense value in that. Thank you again, Kelsey, for being here. I'm so inspired and I hope that my audience is too. I do have actually two more questions for you. My best friend is actually a really big fan. And I was like, hey, I'm recording Kelsey. And she was like, no way. Can you please ask her in her eyes what the meaning of life is? Oh, shit. (laughs) I toggle back and forth. God, my answer is going to sound so unhealthy. As somebody who is, again, we talked about all of the depressive things. I think that this idea of like being content, just being has always been extremely difficult towards me. And the one thing that has always made sense in my mind is the idea that I could build something. And so earlier on in my life, it was building wealth 
through waiting tables. And I remember that experience really distinctly of like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. That was a particularly dark time in my life. And the only thing that made sense was, well, if I work, I make money and I'm building something. And I think that then transitioning to this project, I don't necessarily know what the meaning of life is, but I know I find an immense amount of satisfaction building something that is of value to myself and the people around me. And I don't really believe in the concept of legacy because one day the earth is going to explode and everyone's going to die and every memory of anything that ever happened here will die. But this idea that in the present, I can provide some sort of comfort or service or inspiration to people that they can build their own and they can have something to work towards, which maybe is just the epitome of my obsession with work. Who knows? But that's where I've landed. Thank you. I think that's it. And even for women and for my best friend, Vegas, that's it. You can become something. You can make something out of yourself. Regardless of what that is, you can create. How about that? Yeah, exactly. One last question for you. And again, this is the last one of the season. I'm so excited. What is your gold moment? God, it's not like any sort of big celebrity moment. I think that in 2019, I bootstrapped the beginning of my whole project. I self-funded. I come from just a lot of financial insecurity. And in 2019, after years of relentless work, I finally hit this point in my business where I was like, this is sustaining itself. I can take two weeks off and this isn't going to crumble underneath me. And I think for myself, it's such a simple thing, but people always ask like, when do you think that you've made it and all of these things? And again, I focus on the micro, not the macro and this idea of, oh, I've built something that is sustainable, that has a really solid foundation where it's not dependent on a quote unquote hit it's like a very healthy career and a very healthy business. And I'm living a life that I want to be living that has options and where I have freedom. And I think that when that hit me and that was really like end of 2018, beginning of 2019, years of stress melted off of me. Wow. The gold moment doesn't have to be anything big and out there because that is just as big and beautiful to sustain yourself, to be able to count on yourself because of what you did. So Kelsey, where can people find you on social media? I'm at Verite, I think everywhere. And then you can join my discord where I play among us and probably just talk about inappropriate things on discord. I love my discord community. You can text me, but I don't check my text messages as often. I'm very highly available (laughs) to people. Amazing. And when can we expect new music? Coming. It's definitely coming. This is like my summer of experimentation. And so I'm not being so precious about what I'm releasing. I'm out of distribution deals. And so I have a lot of freedom. And so I have a very strong pop moment coming out, which is a very different sound for me. And then I have another experimental thing coming out and I'm playing around with everything. No pressure, you know? No pressure whatsoever. So thank you so much again for being here. It means so fucking much to me. This has been such an incredible conversation. Awesome. It was so nice to talk to you. I really appreciate you having me on. That's a wrap. Thank you to my listeners for such an incredible season. Thank you to Verite for an incredible episode. And thank you, Goldhand Girls, my first brain child. 
In all honesty, I was terrified to start the season without my co-host from season one, Michaela Chandler. I literally couldn't like talk in the mic in a room by myself. Then I kicked imposter syndrome to the curb by doing this podcast, by lifting women, by sharing stories and voices, by not hiding. It became so much easier when I realized just how vulnerable the person on the other end of the line also is. Each of my guests have had to fight for their passion and I get to share their story. What? Yes, incredible. So I often hear women say, if I only knew I could be in the music industry, I would have done it. This podcast is meant to change that, to spread awareness about how many women are absolutely fucking fanatic about what goes on behind the music, the festivals, the media, the bands, God, the bands. At the end of the day, it's passion, it's inspiration, and it's opportunity. Women deserve opportunity. So thank you for listening to Women in Music. I'm your host, Alexa Ace. You can find me at Alexa A. Ace with Goldhand Girls at Goldhand Girls. And you can find Verite at Verite on all platforms. Above all, be gold. See you guys soon.